Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 104. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and before we go any further and let you know who is on the podcast this week, a quick reminder about our webinar on November the 5th. It's always difficult to accommodate every time zone being a global publication, but we've done our best. It's at 3pm UK or 10am Eastern, and it's live. And best of all, it's free, so please feel free to register. You can even ask questions, as long as it's not about movies. It's why I could never go on a quiz show on television, because the first question about film or television, I'd be done. Before we get to this week's news, this is who we have on the show this week. We talk to Dr. Dorothea Pine, Head of Product Management, and Dr. Matthias Moser, Managing Director of the Food Ingredients Division of Stern Viviol Gruppe. That's one interview. We also talk to Kishan Vasani, Co-Founder and CEO of Spoonshot, and LOPAX Director of Sustainability, Marianne Groven. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. Another week of no travel plans, and even within Scotland, we're now not to go outside of our region for 16 days, which coincides with 12 days of holidays for the kids. The children missed about three months, but they still get their holidays. Not that I'm complaining about time with my son, they grow up fast enough. So while I'm putting the podcast together, he's downstairs playing with Lego, or Pokemon, or something. The other day, he did come into my office while I was doing an interview, and he had the Pokemon music playing, so I'll have to see if that came out on the recording, and if so, how to edit it out. I'm actually surprised he could get into the office, given how much stuff is in it. And the garage is full of music stuff as well. I think I need an extra house. Anyway, let's take a quick look at some of the industry news you may have missed over the past week. Upfield is constructing a new facility in Canada to build its alternative cheese brand, and it will be in Brantford, Ontario, home of the hockey player Wayne Gretzky and of Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone. It's funny how when people are associated with more than one place, they all claim him. He was born in Edinburgh, so there's a Scottish connection. Invented the phone in Brantford, so they claim him. And there's also a Bell connection in Nova Scotia at the National Historic Site. It's kind of the same for me. All the places that I've ever lived, I'll try and pretend I've never been there. Okay, back to the news. And staying with Ontario, the government of Canada has kicked in $2.5 million for three Ontario dairy processors, one of which is in the wonderfully named Bob Cajun, where I once covered a bluegrass festival. And it's also a song by the Tragically Hip. I'm really getting sidetracked today. In Sweden, Volta, Greentech and Co-op are looking to create milk with reduced climate footprint. Kerry Group is hoping to reach more than 2 billion people with sustainable nutrition solutions by 2030. And the Real California Milk Snack Accelerator has expanded with more prize money. Official UK sugar reduction figures in products show improvements in the dairy sector. Norseland, which is part of the Norwegian Co-optina, has launched Ilchester Bonfire Night Cheddar in the UK, and Bonfire Night is November the 5th, same day as our webinar. 
The European Milk Board has a new president, and it's not Trump or Biden. And Danone's CariCare milk formula brand has committed to carbon neutrality. Fonterra farmers have received their greenhouse gas emission profiles, and the Singapore and New Zealand stock exchanges have got together to explore a potential global dairy derivatives partnership. Friesland Campina Wamco is going to create Nigeria's first expertise centre for dairy development. In the UK, Mula has launched two flavours of fat-free skier, and you can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. Okay, so to the interviews. Our first guests this week are from the Stern Viviol Gruppe in Germany. One of the company's subsidiaries is Hydrosol, which has now created a new company, Plantineers, which, as the name suggests, is dedicated to plant-based ingredients. We spoke to Dr. Dorothea Pine, Head of Product Management, and Dr. Matthias Moser, Managing Director of the Food Ingredients Division of Stern Viviol. So I guess the first question is if you could tell me a little bit about the history and the products produced by Hydrosol. Yeah, we at Hydrosol, we develop, produce and market food systems for dairy applications, fine food and convenience applications and meat and fish products. These systems are added to the food product in, in small percentages, but have a significant impact on the properties, in particular the texture and mouthfeel of the product. So at Hydrosol, we stand for food systems, stabilizing and texturizing systems, which perform through the smart combination of hydrocolloids, proteins, and ingredients with emulsifying properties. The company Hydrosol became part of the Vivo Group in 1993. At that time, it was actually a kind of startup with only one product, a hydrocolloid-based filling aid for meat pieces for canned soups. This filling aid gives a viscous consistency that makes it easier to fill the meat into the can. After sterilization through uh, heat treatment, the hydrocolloid plant loses viscosity just right for the consumption of the soup. That was how it all started. And it was actually Volkmar Viviol, the founder of Stern Vivol Group, who saw the potential of this startup Hydrosol the know-how they had and the market potential for stabilizing and texturizing systems. He invested further on in people with knowledge in food technology, in a pilot plant, and so step-by-step the business of Hydrosol grew. The first sector was the mayonnaise market, and from 2000 onward, the expertise in hydrocolloid-based solutions for the dairy market was developed And the third pillar of the hydrosol knowledge was the focus on the meat sector in 2006. That's how it all started. And throughout these years, we uh, indeed developed a leading position in texturizing and stabilizing systems worldwide in many applications. And that's where we are today. And when did you start to develop alternatives to the main hydrosol categories? Yeah, actually, we started in 2014. There we had the first projects on code cut alternatives and then we started to study the market for these kinds of products and decided that we have to build knowledge in this sector. And then when the big market campaigns of Rügenwalder Mühle in Germany and uh, Beyond Meat in the US 
made the market visible for the public, we had already developed a range of products. Meat alternatives for the sausage market, for the structured meat market like burger patties, and also the first fish alternatives. The far bigger market compared to the meat alternatives market is the market for dairy alternatives. So we decided we had to grow an expertise also in this area. We used our expertise from the dairy technological part of Hydrosol and uh, developed alternatives for milk, for yogurt, for, and cream cheese. We already had a basic knowledge there and we were already good in vegetable fat creams, in the stabilization of vegetable fat creams. We developed then all products that we had as dairy products, as dairy alternatives. In the mayonnaise sector, we sell since many years solutions for feisting mayonnaise, so no problem to develop there also a vegan variety of mayonnaise and dressings. So what we decided is that we want to focus on alternatives that are tasty with the right bite and can be prepared like the product with animal origin. And how has plant-based grown in importance at the company and within Hydrosol? Well, everybody who follows, actively follows the trends in food development and food industry, but also the, the average consumer, should have recognized the strong move towards plant-based food products in the last years. It's in fact uh, the top trend in the industry. And obviously at Hydrosol, we were a bit faster in realizing this trend than others. So everyone in our industry has understood that plant-based is not just a short-term hype anymore, but that this segment has come to stay because it meets so many consumer preferences and interests. Plant-based will be an important part of the nutrition of the future. This rise of a totally new category, the plant-based segment, is the first real innovation in food industry since decades. We see enormous growth and interest of all producers, from the meat producer who wants to extend the portfolio, to dairy producers and also specialists on alternatives that are not bound to either meat or dairy alternatives. In the number of projects with customers, we see the interest in plant-based products. Since this number is ever-growing, we see that we were right with our investment in know-how in plant-based alternatives. Following on from that, at what point was it clear to you that there was a need for an entirely new company to be developed from this? Yeah, actually, we, uh, we are working to develop this uh, plant-based category for Hydrosol since uh, some times, and we had many ideas how we could develop this field. And a main point of our strategy is social media for plant-based products because um, the target group can be reached via social media. Yeah, for me as a technologist, plant-based alternatives are foods like dairy and meat products. It's a matrix and you have to find, get the best out of it. It's a way to avoid meat products without losing indulgence when you eat them. But with the work on these products, we saw that we are entering new markets with interesting products and people and that the needs of these customers are different. We wanted to work with our customers as a partner and we need to deliver the best service to these customers. The industry for these kind of solutions has grown up and also our seedling plant-based alternatives had to grow up. Our communication on social media for Hydrosol had a big part on plant-based alternatives and that is growing and growing. So we decided to divide the two communication channels for the animal-derived products on the one hand and on the other hand the plant-based products. In the application lab we already had specialists who work solely on plant-based products or on meat 
derived products. So we build an expertise for the use of plant-based proteins and use of existing knowledge on hydrocolloids and production processes in the food industry. And what does having the new company benefit that it couldn't achieve as a part of Hydrosol? We are really convinced that this plant-based will shape a big part of the future in food industry. And when we believe in something as a group, we really decide to focus. So with Plantineers as a company dedicated to plant-based food, we now focus on this new product category, our customers and the consumers' needs. The new generation of alternative products we target, we, we target the producers of foods for the growing group of flexitarian consumers. That's really a keyword that are consumers which want to reduce the daily consumption of animal derived products without sacrificing uh, indulgence. So driver for such behavior change are in general sustainability, which is a big buzzword, but indeed in this case, many, many uh, aspects come together like less emissions, less consumption of land for feed production, etc., etc. And a second driver is animal welfare. We are convinced that in the future, plant-based will be the new normal the daily food. To reach this target, we as a player in the food industry need to develop products that fulfill the needs of the consumer, tasty, uh, with the right amount of macronutrients, in particular proteins, to saturate and to have the same or even better nutritional values than the conventional products. Again, with Plantineers, we can bring a clear focus on the plant-based food sector. We state that also in our mission. We empower the world with delicious plant-based food solutions to feed everyone sustainably. How does the plant-based competence center that you have fit in with all this, what does that bring to both Hydrosol and to Plantineers? Yeah, the plant-based competence center was something like the first step in this direction that we take now. And uh, we established it last year to create a place where all the knowledge of the Stern Vivio group in one certain area comes together. So we see here a perfect example for the know-how connection that we have in our Stern Vivio group. From the beginning on, we worked on the plant-based area together with all specialists also from, the, uh, from our sister companies. So in the plant-based competence center, product manager, food sciences and technologists from six or now seven different companies combine their knowledge. Experts from Stern Enzyme developed with us a delicious oat drink made directly from oat or um, together with Stern Vitamin, we applied enrichment concepts for the plant-based alternatives to fulfill requirements for th certain health claims. So together with our colleagues from Deutsche Bank, we presented on the FIE 2019 a plant-based gluten-free Tarflambe the stuff from the baking experts, the alternatives to sour cream and to bacon came from hydrosol. So you see this works pretty well since in this totally new application field, the producers need joint knowledge to build the most innovative, indulgent and also interesting products for the consumers. And what kind of products will Plantineers be developing in the short, medium, long term? So one of our focal areas right now is the fish segment. We will uh, further work on fish alternatives like smoked salmon and fish products for sushi or analogs to fish for sushi products. We already have presented the results for convenience products like fish fingers or fish and chips and now work on the raw, the uncooked fish lookalikes.
Another big topic is egg replacement. Our alternative to an egg patty is already very close to the animal-derived product, to the real egg. Combined with our bacon alternative, it gives a perfect plant-based breakfast sandwich. Yummy and, and really tasty. We are working on the expansion of this range. Indulgent scrambled egg alternatives, liquid egg alternatives for also being used at home. And all products which are not only relevant for the uh, U.S. market, but are, can also be marketed under European law. This is uh, very important as the current raw material, the, the, the mango bean, is uh, for the time being not approved in the European Union. On the long term, we will work on consumer-oriented questions for our customer because we are partnering with them. We, we develop products together with them that fulfill the needs of the consumer and we will think about and improve the health and nutritional values. We will work on products for certain labeling systems and certifications. But what always stays in the center is indulgence because products have to taste to fit the consumer need. Without taste, no success for any food product. And you mentioned there are a couple of areas of plant-based that really haven't been that well developed yet in terms of fish and seafood and also egg replacements. And as you mentioned previously, flexitarians are not necessarily going to accept a product that's a replacement but doesn't have a good taste profile or texture profile. Yeah, and flexitarians are those who will really drive the change. I believe the real drivers of change with regards to Raw material consumption, resource consumption will be those who just eat less, significantly less animal-derived products. What about the future for dairy alternatives within this? Yeah, in the dairy sector, we were quite active in the past year. So we had many, many projects and uh, developed new products. And we had no time to communicate them all. So on the plantineers, we will now start to communicate on all these products. So we developed a lot of products like a plant-based drink type barista that really has a strong, good foam that also works with different uh, cappuccino machines. And um, we have high protein, developed high protein drinks and um, of course also flavored drinks. We have developed alternatives to cheese products like a barbecue cheese or even an alternative to cottage cheese. We have the whole range of these alternatives of dairy products in our portfolio. We'll work on that range with inclusion of more protein and uh, make the products even tastier by discovering new plant proteins that can be used in the development of dairy products. And one other category that we have or that we developed recently is hybrids product, half dairy, half plant-based. And this is also interesting for the flexitarians because uh, some of them don't like the taste of plant-based milk alternatives. And this is a way to reduce the intake of dairy products also. Clearly, you're targeting all areas of the sector, but it's also interesting that you seem to be focusing on areas that aren't necessarily particularly well-developed and plant-based right now, such as adding protein, adding nutrition, and some of the other areas like seafood, cottage cheese. And, and, and the consumer expects a healthy level of diversity for the food. So it's very normal that more products have to come to make that really a accepted choice for the consumer. It must be very exciting to be on the cutting edge of some of these developments. 
Yeah, we also see it like that. So it's really exciting. Um, the right move at the right moment. And there's a lot of attention for this step uh, at our customers and in the market in general. So we are sure we do the right thing. Next, we go to Norway to chat with LOPAC's Director of Sustainability, Marianne Groven. At this year's Online Dairy Innovation Summit 2020, she spoke on sustainable packaging innovations for the sector. And Marianne can give us the lowdown on what she spoke about and what LOPAC is doing to help its customers with sustainability. For some reason, and I'm not exactly sure why, but in the last month, maybe two months, the number of press releases that I've been getting on sustainability and packaging just seems to have skyrocketed quite yeah. wide. <laughs> yeah, it's really, I mean, I've, I've been working in Alapac for 14 years and in the environment in the past 10 years. And I really, over those 10 years, it's been a huge development. And the interest, I mean, from at, the, at their customers to go from being maybe a, a point that we forced into the meeting to be the, the top first agenda point in every meeting. So it's, uh, it's really something that our customers value. Why do you think that's changed? Do you think that's from the consumer's angle or government angle or... Uh, both, I think. I think that 2015 was a, a bit of a changer when you had the Paris Agreement and it became so critical. And it came also much more to the media, you know, with how we really are in a crisis right now, a climate crisis. So I think that at that point, it took some years to develop some framework. And, and now we have some things in place more. We have science-based targets. We have more initiatives to help achieve these targets, but also policy come after that of course countries signed up for the Paris Agreement to reduce their emissions and then there's a number of directives and uh, regulations coming up to focus on this and and I think that particularly packaging has been uh, packaging has uh, often been criticized for being a huge uh, climate issue it's not necessary and and it's just waste and yeah all these things we have a bit to defend I think so then we have also a, a lot to do in terms of offering good packaging products but, but I mean, one of the key points we need to prove because the consumers don't necessarily understand the importance of packaging and how packaging really helps to protect the food. So to avoid food waste, which is the most important critical climate issue. Do you not have to go to companies anymore? Do they come to you and ask how you can help them? Yeah, it's changed more and more from being us pushing this agenda. They require it. And so what ways are you able to help with sustainability with companies? Generally, beverage cartons are already a very environmentally friendly choice compared to other packaging formats. So we have already a great solution. We are paper-based, renewable. We have sustainable forestry behind the cartons. So we really have already a very good offering. But then we, we have a lot of new innovations that really helps push the uh, emissions further down. We have a renewable plastic in the cartons. We are carbon neutral. We can offer carbon neutral cartons. We have uh, just launched cartons without closures. So that that means going back to the kind of the old uh, old fashioned carton. So we can really help in, in many ways. I mean, we have in a way different levels of sustainability. I mean, where you start already with at, a, at a sustainable option, but you can choose some add-ons that, that makes it even more sustainable. With the return to the old style of packaging, 
do consumers see that as a step backwards or are they just glad that it's a step forward in terms of sustainability? No, I think that it is in a way it's a bit retro as well. So a lot of consumers also like that. Of course, it's, it's not as convenient because you can't put the carton back lying down. It needs to stand up. But other than that, taking the closure off is really something that because it's less plastic, there is a lot of, of willingness to reduce plastic use these days. That is really the, the key argument for, for taking that off. So there are a few customers now that are testing uh, that, the concept of taking the cap off. And I think they want to test it with the consumers to see how that works. And what other things are you working on to try and address some of these issues? Uh, we're constantly working on, of course, our renewable offerings. So to push our renewability percentage further further up. I mean, we, we have already a fully renewable fresh milk carton that is made from, uh, of course, the, the forestry behind the, the carton itself. And then there is the residue of the waste from making that paper that is uh, it can be used to make a plastic. So and that's our, our fully renewable uh, option. And, and we find renewables to be really the solution because they have much lower greenhouse gas emissions and they also help to secure resources for the future generations. So that's to us really the, the cue to use renewable materials rather than the fossil finite uh, resources. Now we have of course other barriers that needs more work to get there. So really to, to focus on that, that's a key focus area for, for us to offer 100% renewable materials in all our cartons by 2030 basically. And of course, you have to do that in a way that doesn't compromise the product as well. You must obviously do a lot of testing to ensure that shelf life isn't compromised or contents aren't spoiled. Yes, for sure. For sure. Definitely. I mean, that, that's really that's really key. Uh, we see that uh, looking at uh, kind of climate problems and emissions, food waste is really a significant source of the emissions. And, and uh, I think they said that if the food waste was a country, it would have had the third highest greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So food waste is really a huge problem and, and proper packaging can really help that, keeping the food fresh and, and allowing uh, consumers to use all of the products until, yeah, until it's empty. That's really, really, really key. And, uh, and there we also have another um, solution for that, for uh, helping customers to really squeeze every last drop of the product out of the carton uh, before you send it to recycling. It's uh, the, the Purepack Sense carton. It has some folding lines on the side. So we have always this in, in mind, of course, that how can we improve while still, of course, maintaining the quality so that the, the products are not wasted. We also did some studies showing that the, there was a significant reduction in the residue products, especially viscous products such as yogurt, drinking yogurt in a carton. You can really uh, squeeze out much, much more if you, you fold those, those lines and, and squeeze it out like that. You must work with a lot of dairy companies, and that must be key, is the collaboration between yourself and the companies? Yes, definitely, definitely. We work very closely with the customers. That's, that's really important for us, really to help them make sure, because they, they have, of course, uh, our customers are also facing sustainability challenges, even, even more so since uh, the content of the carton has a higher climate impact than the packaging itself. So really, the collaboration helps us to, to make sure that the products are good, safe and sustainable, both from the inside and the outside. And so when you work with dairy companies, what kind of improvements and benefits can you give to them? Uh, we can, of course, offer these cartons 
are the, the best cartons that we can offer, of course, uh, and they can choose what level of sustainability they want to put their carton at. But of course, we also have other improvement projects on site. We have the filling machines that we are installing at customer sites and we, we do some, of course, also optimizing of that. How can we optimize efficiency and quality and reduce waste also in the filling process uh, and also in the consumption of energy and, and water on the machine itself to work with the customers on, on these kind of optimizing projects. That's also very key. We've also seen that actually the customers who are offering these uh, organic sustainable products, they also want to team up for the, uh, the most sustainable packaging as well. Obviously, you, you've made improvements and taking out as much plastic as possible. What, what are the next steps? I mean, how far can you go in terms of making things more sustainable? Yeah, we can uh, we can go pretty far. <laughs> I think we have uh, uh, we've already seen a 20% reduction in the carbon footprint of our cartons since 2014, and uh, we have avoided 12,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, since 2014, after we uh, we launched our renewable plastic in the cartons and the, and the closures. So really to go even further, to stretch even further, we have uh, increased uh, our budget for research and development by 25%, really focusing on more and more innovations to, to make sure that we can offer the most sustainable uh, solutions for the future. And we're working together with other partners. We are taking part of research projects funded by governments and really looking at turning every stone, I would say, to to really see that we can find the best solutions. And we, we have set some quite ambitious targets as well to improve sustainability um, in terms of, yeah, the, the 100% renewable materials by 2030 and uh, also in terms of recycling and recyclability that we have some very ambitious targets as well. We're not going to sit down and relax and, and say that we, we already did good. We're going to try and, and stretch even further. And, and yeah, I think we're doing that also in a good way because we now uh, the company is really taking sustainability one step further internally um, where we really embedded this uh, sustainability strategy in all the business areas. So we have really a sustainability driven business strategy. Obviously, you're about to give a, a presentation on this. Are you finding that there's more and more interest in sustainability from from that perspective, from presentations and, and events? Yes, definitely. I think that the, this is increasingly a, a topic that, that is on the rise everywhere. I think past months has been, uh, of course, less traveling for all of us. Actually, that means that it's easier to have uh, meetings uh, through Teams or other uh, platforms. And, and it's actually easier to, to reach out and, and talk about these, these issues uh, in a shorter meeting without uh, all the traveling in between. So I think that we, we reached out to even more customers over the past, uh, past months. So it's really really on the rise. And I suppose the other good thing about doing it by through Microsoft Teams is that you're reducing your footprint through less travel as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. We had some targets on reducing uh, business travels. And uh, yeah, needless to say, we reached all those targets already. (laughs) Absolutely. I think all of us who travel not only miss it, but we are cognizant of the fact that it is making a positive difference in terms of environmental impact. Yes, for us, the, the climate crisis is the most pressing issue these days. Uh, the 2020s is said to be really the climate decade where we really have to make uh, make an impact, all of us. And it, it's a kind of a, everyone needs to pitch in and do their, do their part. And that's why we uh, set 
these targets. And uh, we were one of the first companies to sign up for the Science-Based Targets Initiative commitment uh, to keep this uh, rise in global average temperature below one and a half degrees. So that means that even though we as a company had already uh, reduced our emissions by 70% from 2008 to, to 2018, we've set targets to further reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030, and also to actually reduce the emissions by 16% across the whole value chain. And that means that we need to work together across the value chain. So not just us, but also the suppliers, of course, but also the customers. So this is uh, something that we really want to work uh, with our customers over the next decade to see how we can work together to really get the emissions down and to save the, the climate. And next, it's to trends. Food innovation intelligence platform Spoonshot teamed up with international food trendologist Liz Moscow, who is one of our panelists for the webinar next month, to predict and interpret the food trends that will impact menus, product development and consumer behaviour into 2021. The result was eight biggest food trend predictions for 2021 and beyond, which was recently updated to reflect consumer behaviour during COVID-19. Rather than having me read out what they are, it's far better if it comes from Kishan Vasani, co-founder and CEO of Spoonshot. I guess first, could you just give us a little background on the company and the kind of things that you do? Sure, absolutely. So Spoonshot is essentially a food and beverage innovation intelligence company. We look at leveraging artificial intelligence and the domain knowledge of food science to help the industry under, understand emerging consumer needs and the trends that that's translating to. And even beyond that, what kind of innovation opportunities will arise that brands need to innovate for, either you know, op from an opportunity perspective or even from a threat perspective. Uh, one of the key things that we do at Spoonshot is provide what we like to call unintuitive intelligence and personalized insights. Uh, that's the benefit of using technology, I guess. And we have a software platform that is typically used by product developers or consumer insights professionals, R&D chefs, and marketing innovation teams um, doing the innovation, front-end innovation research and planning and strategic sort of white space opportunity hunting, that kind of thing. Since we now seem to be living online, has that helped in any ways? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, of course, everybody's looking to digitize their workflows in some way. And in our case, I mean, people were doing research. I mean, there's sort of the traditional methodologies when you're talking about front-end innovation, which is around consumer diaries or panels or desk research, Googling, attending events, farmers markets, whatever, looking at menus. And so we were seeing a sort of a move to the digitization of that before the pandemic. But of course, that's accelerated post-pandemic as well. And things like events have completely changed in nature. So it's really been for us in that way, I guess, the silver lining to still a very dark cloud for everybody. And so we, we've been able to kind of help people understand that they can do all of this kind of research that they're typically doing by subscribing, instead of subscribing to 20 different newsletters or, you know, having to kind of being overwhelmed by different information from different sources. Our job as a company is to organize that information overload that they're seeing in the world of food and beverage and bring it right down to concise insights, which are kind of, like I said, personalized for their needs inside our platform and, and give them a really interesting way to kind of interact with 
data. It's not like uh, typical analytic graphs and charts, and it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be kind of more kind of discovery. And it's meant to feel natural to people who are not necessarily technical in nature. So yeah, it's just trying to help them be kind of supercharge their their innovation or, or be more agile in in their sort of innovation research. And you just come out with a trend report. What was the reasoning initially behind coming out with that? So I think, I mean, we've, we've been around in this particular space now for two and a half years. The first one and a half was our own R&D to develop the technology. And our platform, our primary solution has been live for exactly one year now. And uh, so we launched the trend report that uh, we're talking about today, which is for 2021. We originally published it at the time of our launch, October 2019, and this was pre-pandemic. So we see this as a, as a kind of key piece of content that we're going to publish every year. And we wanted to publish sort of kind of that Q, Q3, Q4 period every year, but not for the next year, but for like almost the year ahead of that. So that's our capability as a technology prediction company and a trend prediction company. We want to be able to help our customers see further into the future. And so, you know, normally we wouldn't do an update to the report. We would just let this, you know, the year pan out and perhaps do a report card on ourselves and, and publish that as a piece. But because, of course, of this um, COVID-19 sort of it's being called essentially a black swan event, a once in a lifetime occurrence, we wanted to go back to the data and make sure that nothing's like significantly changed. And so we made eight trend predictions. And when we went back and sort of re-looked at it a lot in the last couple of months, we see that seven out of eight are still very relevant and valid. So that's not too bad from our perspective. We're quite happy with that in that sense. So we just felt like we wanted to sort of get it out there again and say, hey, this has now been updated to include the post-COVID world that we live in. And in line with that, of course, this is about 2021 and beyond. But actually, we'll be relaunching our 2022 trend predictions report in early in the new year as well. So, you know, we're trying to really paint the picture of the future of food. And and that's a sort of core capability of ours as a trend prediction company. And the trends that you are looking into, are they global trends or are they specifically regional trends? So we kind of have a focus on um, sort of three regions or three markets, as you will, for now. Uh, as, As I said, we're an emerging company ourselves. And so it's sort of US and North America specific is the kind of key for this specific report but any market that closely aligns to those or closely follows the u.s market or north america market will get value from this report as well so it could be obviously elements might be relevant for the uk elements might be relevant for australia and other markets that sort of align to the u.s but it's primarily designed for for this particular piece is primarily for the north american market and without giving the entire report away, mm-hmm. uh, I wonder if you could sort of run through some of the trends and especially the ones that are pertinent to both dairy, dairy and dairy alternatives. Sure, absolutely. So I'll, I'll kind of give a quick run through and then, yeah, focus in again on some of the dairy aspects of these. But sugar reduction, obviously, has been around for a while in that sense, but more health conscious consumers, regulatory changes, new technologies, new ingredients, allulose, for example. The key question in that space is, can brands that are typically obviously contain significant content of sugar typically positioned as treats can they move away from that and in a meaningful way and is that acceptable in the eyes of the consumer so that's that's kind of an interesting one for that the next is uh, garbanzo or, or the chickpea again been around for a while has been rising for a number of years chickpea flour of course used in crust and flatbreads we think it could have a play in the frozen food section for sure so I think there's, there's some really interesting opportunities there. And it's quite a versatile uh, ingredient that can be used in many ways. Then there's 
obviously CBD alternative, what is known as copaiba, which is a completely legal essential oil derived from the resin of the copaivera tree. And it provides similar kind of therapeutic benefits to CBD. So, you know, if anyone was worried about the legal issues around CBD, this could be a viable alternative. Uh, another a really interesting one for us that I personally like is climatarian diet, uh, which is thinking about the context of, imagine eliminating all foods with anything with a high carbon footprint and going for very locally grown, you know, seasonal foods and anything that exploits animals that are at risk from climate change. So, you know, there's a huge piece on that that we're working on, which is a deeper dive, which we'll be releasing next year as well. And another one, which is uh, sort of been a niche ingredient for a while, but we think that it could become a major play next year and beyond is, is carob, which is often consumed in, in a dry format or roasted, often used in from a pulp context. It has lots of lots of nutritional benefits around fiber, calcium, protein, it's gluten-free, caffeine-free. So it's, it's got lots of different things. We think it's potentially the next superfood. Uh, so that's an interesting one. Fats, uh, there's also sort of the return of fats, depending on how you think about them. But of course, we've seen the rise or the re-rise of fats through things like the keto diet, of course, and getting into the, the nuances of different fats. And we think that next year is going to be about a more liberal use of things like the extra virgin olive oil uh, as the kind of the favorite and perhaps a slight move away from things like coconut oil. That's what we see in the data. And then everything in moderation, I think, is the seventh one, as we call it. So this is this is interesting in the sense that it kind of makes sense if you think about it, and it's a very common life phrase in that uh, in that sense. But if you think about it from a from a diet perspective, things like the keto diet are very hard for most people to follow. So what we saw with keto is you see that there's lots of evolution of the diet. In fact, we see there are 16 variations of the keto diet, and that also gives rise to things like flexitarianism, which is is another way of saying, in some ways, everything in moderation. And in another way of saying it, it's about personalization. You know, people just doing what feels sensible what feels right for them and we've seen that in another way as well in the sense that you have kind of trends that exist at the opposite ends of various spectrum like things like plant and animal you know decadent and functional boozy and sober curious for me it's there's an underlying truth to that one around the personalization of food which i think is very much underway and will really develop across the rest of this decade and then out of that that was the seven that held true from both before and after the pandemic. Uh, and we kind of, we had an, uh, the original eighth one was sexy, ugly flavor mashups. And we felt that that one still has a role to play, but we feel maybe it's going to change in the sense due to COVID. I mean, a lot of that innovation flavor, ingredient innovation was happening in food service, particularly in the sort of high-end restaurants. And of course that world has changed a little bit and people have moved back towards safer, more comfort options in foods and we think actually yes it's still going to be there but perhaps not at the same rate of pace that was there before and so we brought into the into the trends report for this slightly updated version one other trend which of course has seen a huge rise this year but was always on the rise beforehand which is the ghost kitchens for anyone that doesn't know ghost kitchens are essentially taking a restaurant and putting it in a commercial kitchen um, and not having kind of being in a primary location which has high rental values and and not just that but leveraging efficiencies by running multiple menus out of the same kitchen and and in the food delivery context you could run i know companies that are running five ten different you know effectively restaurants or menus from one commercial kitchen and uh, leveraging those efficiencies and and you know the consumer is mostly none the wiser i mean if you know your local takeaway your local restaurant then fine but uh, if you're in discovery mode then 
you try a restaurant, you're not going to know where it is exactly. And, and this has become a big thing. You've had even the former Uber CEO for original founder of the company. He's started cloudkitchens.com. He's building the infrastructure for that. Uh, you've got all sorts of innovation happening in the sense of there are kind of social media brands. Like, for example, there's an, a brand in the UK, food social brand called Twisted. And they have millions of followers watching their creative videos around food. And they've taken that into the delivery context and now launch limited editions and have a dedicated twisted menu, which is only available in the, the London region, for example, in the UK. So there are so all sorts of interesting ha things happening with the ghost kitchen space. And we see that's just accelerating as well. So that's been a really interesting one. One that took my interest there was the, when you mentioned climatarian in terms of sustainability, mm -hmm. because that kind of encompasses many of the other trends that you mentioned. Do you think that we're going to get to a point in time where in the same way as in the UK, we have traffic light labeling on <laughs> products? Do you think that we're going to get sustainability labeling with carbon footprint information? I think we have to. I think it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. You know, I was recently asked about, you know, what kind of movements we, we would want to, if Spoonshot could be responsible for starting, if I could sort of wave a wand and, and start a movement or push a movement forward, well, this would definitely be it. It's almost cringeworthy how much food waste goes on. I find it personally very difficult to walk into grocery stores and see all the food that I know is going to be thrown away at the end of the day, you know, perfectly good food. And, and in terms of like knowing what environmental impact has and, and this year more than any other, of course, we can, we, you know, we have to be honest about what's happening with the one place that we call home. It is just getting to all, literally feels like we've got to the point of no return. And, you know, what we've seen this year with the pandemic was foreshadowed and foretold, I guess, by Bill Gates in his now famous TED talk in 2015. Like, do we really want to let history repeat itself here? You know, the warning signs are there. Everybody's talking about it. We do need to make massive movements towards, uh, and particularly in the food industry, towards um, sustainable agriculture, sustainable sort of food development and food production. And underlying truth to that, let's be honest, it's the economics, right? Like the reason that healthy food and or healthy food is more expensive than junk food, it's just, you know, it's simple supply, demand, economics. And how do we turn those economics on their head? And in the case that you mentioned, of course, food labeling, you know, the traffic lights, the Nutri-Score, yes, there's going to be environmental ones. I think in Australia, they have something along the lines of, which is somewhat a step in this direction, a percentage of products that are locally sourced on all of their products or certainly in certain categories. I think this is a huge thing and, and we can no longer sit by them. And we're not sitting by it. There's lots of innovation happening, upcycled ingredient product companies and those kind of things are happening, but it just needs to happen at a much bigger scale. It's not just the contents as well, because the packaging itself is something that needs to be looked at in terms of its environmental footprint. Absolutely. And, and dairy, I think, can play a really interesting role in that. And perhaps that can be kind of the way that I could talk about. Uh, I think that was the second part of your previous question is how is it that some of these trends can play into and be embraced by, by the dairy industry? So if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll just... I think, I think as far as I can see, there are kind of four of the eight that really could be relevant, super relevant for dairy. Uh, so in terms of things like, you know, sugar rush, uh, of course you have, uh, or, you know, trying to reduce the sugar, the ready to drinks dairy space is perhaps has sometimes been high in sugar. And I think seeing the alternative technologies and, and sweetening agents that help reduce the, that dependency on sugar for taste, 
Um, I think there's an opportunity there. I think sweeteners like Alilus have the potential to encouraging consumers to, to embrace milk again. And if you think about, you know, kids as a group as well, I think, you know, if you can introduce that low sugar content to them in dairy products at an early age, they get used to that taste and it's, it's kind of normal for them. So I think there's, there's something in that for sure. Uh, in terms of uh, the trend around chickpea and garbanzo, uh, you have, of course, the challenger of the plant-based milk alternatives industry is obviously there. But I think the one thing that we're going to see is that in the context of chickpea and, and for its nutritional benefits, I think that can have a play here as well in terms of like even chickpea ice cream we're seeing making certain waves with certain products. So I think there's a sort of relationship between the chickpea and the dairy category in itself. In terms of climatariums, uh, I think that what's interesting about that, it is that the meat and dairy get a significant portion of the blame for the greenhouse gas emissions. You know, it's a complex issue and it's not like dairy consumption is, is not going to stop. It's just too core to, to our needs as society and our values and the importance we place on it. And of course, dairy is a fantastic source of nutrition. So it's all about how can we make the, the perception of dairy and the nutritional benefits that it brings how can that be sort of brought to the forefront? And in what you mentioned, for example, through eco-friendly packaging as another way of doing it. So I think that's a really important thing. And then fourthly, in terms of everything in moderation trend, eating habits, you know, they've kind of come full circle in some way, balancing healthy eating with a, with a treat as an indulgence. And you look at the plant-based milk alternatives, but actually, if you can combine that with the nutritional powerhouse of dairy, essentially, I think then you've got a real opportunity. And we're already seeing products in the market that are blending the plant-based you know, milk alternatives with that core dairy. And you know you get the best of both worlds in that way. So again, I think tying into the everything in moderation trend. So yeah, I think dairy has an incredible role and incredible opportunity ahead, despite various challenges, both economic and otherwise, in terms of the way food and beverage trends are going. I think there's lots to embrace for the industry and, and there's plenty of that in our, in our report. Uh, I think just dairy industry needs to be innovative about how it can find new ways of consumption and new ways to kind of leverage those other trends. Of course, would really encourage people who are in like from a dairy perspective and want to understand the broader landscape and opportunities and threats and, and whether it's plant-based or otherwise, more than happy to have a chat with them, talk it through. And, and as I said, our technology is there to help people see the future of food, help plan, help innovate in a way that's unintuitive. I think that's the key. We really focus on things that feel like oh, you know, why was that? How come I didn't think of that? You know, that's kind of what we want people to feel when they see our insights and our intelligence. You know, thinking outside the box, which is not often the case with the food product innovation. And so I think, you know, happy to, happy to have those conversations informally or otherwise uh, with anyone you know, from your readership or in the industry, because I think there is far more opportunity than anything else with everything that's on the horizon from what we can see in the data. How would people get in touch with you? So they can either reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for, for me on LinkedIn. Or you know, they can even email me, kishan at spoonshot.com. Or they can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter. We have white papers, a range of white papers that we publish bi-monthly. Feel free to download any of those. So yeah, there's, there's a ton of content from our side. But for me personally, yeah, the best way, LinkedIn or kishan at spoonshot.com. And now it's time for our weekly look at what's happening in the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. We continue to have a bullish week this week for butter and skim milk powder. Cream getting stronger, I guess, uh, helped 
butter to uh, also remain uh, relatively well bid. Uh, we also found butter in the US starting to find support on the future side. Uh, skimmel powder continues to remain bid also, and relatively speaking, has probably been stronger than butter on the week. Quarter four, butter trading around 34.25 levels up around 40 euros on last week. And uh, quarter one trading around 33.95 is up around 45 euros on the week. Uh, same pattern in quarter two and quarter three with quarter two butter up to around 34.40, which is up around 60, 65 euros on the week. And uh, quarter three butter was up around 3,500 level, which is up around 75 euros on the week. Then skimmel powder, quarter four of this year, um, was up around 30 euros on the week to 22.60 level. We had quarter one up from around 22.50.55 level last week to around 22.95 this week. Then uh, quarter two was up around, just marginally up at around the 22.95 level. So pretty flat across quarter one and quarter two there for skimmel powder around the 22.95 level. Quarter three then was up as well, again, marginally by about 20 euros on the week up to 23.20 level. Uh, we continue to trade around the 700 level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. And that's it for another Dairy Dialogue podcast. Still two more before the end of October and Halloween, although I think we're all kind of fed up of masks now and glasses that steam up when you put the mask on. There are even ads over here on the radio now for laser eye surgery connected to steamed up spectacles because of face masks. Definitely something we would never have thought of a year ago as is the case with designer face masks. As for the podcast, we already have two interviews done for next week with another two in the pipeline. And of course, if you have news and would like to be on the podcast, just email us through the website. We're always happy to feature new companies, different countries and different products to try and keep the podcast diverse in every way. It's why I'm really proud that the newsletter and the podcast are read and listened to in so many countries. So wherever you are, I hope you have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, until next time when I hope you will join us again, thanks for listening.